I mentioned Bridesmaids in the book, the movie Bridesmaids as a benchmark, great movie, of a strong, big cast of women humorists, or women actors. And it was a funny movie that made a lot of money. And I think it opened people's eyes that women being funny, it has a huge audience. And that was true also with SNL and Tina Fey becoming the head writer at SNL. These are things that, that push us into equality in little ways or big ways. That was Liza Donnelly, the New Yorker cartoonist we spoke with around this time last year. I'm John Lee, and we invited Liza back for this bonus episode to check in on this very funny lady. Today's episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by Oum Art, where you can find original prints, jewelry, home decor, and custom gifts featuring Oum, the first written form of the Irish language. Visit oumart.com, and that's O-G-H-A-M-A-R-T.com, and listeners can save 20% at oumart.com using coupon code IRISHSTEW. That's O-G-H-A-M-A-R-T.com. Well, welcome back to uh, an Irish Stew check-in as we're going back to talk to some of our previous guests in this bonus episode. And I get to talk to Liza Donnelly, who was a guest about a year ago, Liza, correct? As uh, Well, we'll get into your history, but I just want to know, how much has your life changed since you've been on Irish Stew? <laughs> oh, immensely. I'm just People are knocking down my door wanting to talk to me and uh, draw things. No, oh, no. Great. I love talking to you guys. I, and I love being connected to the Irish community. You know, I've lived in this area for most of my life. It's only recently that I've gotten into the Irish network in New York. And Liza's a very well-known cartoonist. I'd say a visual commentator on the world around us who's looking to uh, change the world with humor. And we'll talk about that in a second. But since you brought up the Irish thing, has more Irishness happened for you? Have you discovered other aspects of the Irish circle or the Irish community since we last talked? Uh, I went to an event for Irish women writers. That was fascinating in New York. Opened my eyes to, to women who, the, a bit of the history of women who have been writers in Ireland and the struggles they've had. That was great. And that was hosted by Oh, gosh. I can't remember. The Sorry. consulate, probably, right? The consulate. Right. Uh, exactly. the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was there at the oh, Rosie right. O'Grady's. Just, yeah, yeah. We just, we just saw each it. other there. Yeah. They're very proactive. They, I know the consulate looks as art and culture is kind of the main calling card for Ireland. Yeah. Well, Ireland has such a history of great poetry, at least, and writing, so... And in the episode that just aired a few days ago, our guest was Ambassador Dan Mulhall, who recently mm-hmm. wrote A Reader's Guide to Ulysses. So you see somebody who's a very prominent in the diplomatic corps also has the bandwidth and the mindset to be able to not only read Ulysses, and, but digest it and serve as your roadmap for when you want to try to read it. Wow. Well, I'll look for that when I get off my gumption to read it. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably a good place to start. Well, let's get into what you, the book you just put out, Very Funny Ladies, The New Yorkers, Women Cartoonists. You know, I'm um, sitting here and I'm looking at my New Yorker Encyclopedia of Cartoons two box set. And I think when people hear about a book of 
on cartooning, they imagine sort of a coffee table art book. But mm-hmm. that's not really what this is. Could you describe what your goals were? Mm-hmm. And, uh... Well, the good news is it does have cartoons in it. So that's important. People, if they buy the book or look at it, they'll see great cartoons. But it is a history. So it's got, I actually did a lot of writing for it. <laughs> and it's it's the history of the women cartoonists from 1925 when the New Yorker was founded to 2021. And uh, I just loved researching the women from the past and talking over the pandemic. I interviewed a lot of contemporary women too. So what was surprising to me when I did the research down at the New York Public Library and the uh, New York archives was that there was a woman doing a cartoon in the first issue in 1925. That was a surprise to me. Hmm. So um, I knew there were some women back in the 20s and 30s, but I and I just sort of vaguely knew their names, but I just loved researching and finding more of them and learning about their lives and how they got into it. And then finding out there were no women in the middle of the last century. And then more of us now ever than, bef- than ever before at the New Yorker. So well, what happened there? You, you, you seem to touch on a kind of an idea of the 20s being a period of opening for women. And then there's, it seems to have shut down, at least uh-huh. uh, in the example of the cartoonists. Yeah, there were maybe eight to 10 women drawing cartoons for the magazine in the 20s and 30s. It was a very popular humor magazine. And the founders were Harold Ross and Jane Grant, who they happened to be married. But Jane was a real feminist of her time. I think there was a a freedom, a feeling of freedom among women in the 20s because they just got the vote in 1920. And particularly in the urban areas, women, my guess is I'm not an expert on that time period, but my understanding is that there was a feeling of openness, that we could do anything we want. And we know that's not true, but many women felt that way. And they were coming out and getting jobs and, and some of them were artists. So then in the middle of the last century after the war and depression and the McCarthy era, there was a lot of conservatism in the country towards domestic issues. So women were back in the homes, expected to raise children and do nothing much more than that or cook. Mm-hmm. So I think there were fewer women in that middle of the, and there were none in the 1960s in the New Yorker drawing cartoons. It's a little microcosm into what was going on in our country, if you look at the cartoons. And then in the 70s, after the second wave of feminism with Gloria Steinem and and all the wonderful women in that movement, there was again a a feeling of openness, I think. I I benefited from that. And I sold my first cartoon in 1979 to the New Yorker. And I, I know that I felt at the time, I didn't want to be a woman cartoonist. I just wanted to be a cartoonist. And the fact that I thought that I could, I think is a reflection of the times and, and my parents too, making me feel emboldened. And, my, and I'm, I'm a privileged white person too. And that doesn't, that certainly is part of it. But I think there was an openness and a new editor who was also open to new types of humor. So all those elements came together. And now there's even a new editor at the New Yorker. And then she happens to be a woman. And there's a lot more diversity among the cartoonists and a lot more, a lot more women. So it's now, it's all very diverse there. It's great. When you look at a cartoon, is there something that says this was done by a woman to you or this was done by a man? Or, oh, no, or... uh, no. In fact, I try to make sure that people realize that the reason I did this book was to find the women and learn about them in the past, not to separate them out as somehow different, but to shine a light on the history of it. And uh, I, I mean, there, there's no way that we can keep our gender out of what we create. It's just... It's part of who we are, but I don't like to say that women draw this way or write this way and men write this way because it's not, there's no, there's no way to separate them like that. 
in looking back through some of these uh, drawings, cartoons, you must have seen them in the past, some of them previously. Do, does the meaning change? Do certain cartoons jump out that you that didn't really resonate the first time through? You mean the ones from the, the his, historical it, ones? Yeah, in your in your book. Yeah, um, trying to think of an example. Because you, the cartoons from the past often are ageless. You can they can. And some of the ones in the book you, you can look at and you'll say, oh, that applies to now in terms of the subject matter. But sometimes you don't understand. I try not to put these in the book. Sometimes you don't understand what they're talking about because it's a bit about the culture of the time or, or a celebrity of the time that we're not, it's not in our, in our minds. Um, but you also see, and again, I didn't put these in the book, you also see misogynistic cartoons and you see racist cartoons, things that people would take for granted back then, and they certainly would not fly today. So uh, it's, it's, I love looking at history through cartoons. What, what better yeah. way to look at history, you know? And as you were, you're in a different role here. When you were on with us about a year ago, you talked about the struggles of getting in the door and getting your cartoons mm-hmm. published and the, the kind of persistence you needed because you, you had to get by some gatekeepers. Well, th- for this book, you're the gatekeeper. What was it like to accept and reject the cartoons? Did, did you have a difficult chore there or were the ones that went in the book obvious? Well, I should also make it clear that this is a this is a new edition of the book I published in 2005, which is Funny Ladies. And that went from 1925 to 2005, I believe. And so the, all the women in that time period that drew cartoons are in the book, all that I could find. Nobody was left out. The new book has a new chapter and a new introduction and a forward by David Remnick and, and the senior editor and the cartoon editor, Emma Allen. The new edition has a lot more women in that new chapter and I had to make some choices. So, because I, I couldn't profile 60 women <laughs> mm-hmm. and many of them had only one cartoon in, which is fine. That's amazing to have one cartoon in the magazine. But first of all, I tried to focus on just the magazine, not the online cartoons, because there are now a lot of online cartoonists, and I, I had to leave them out, sadly. I just focused on the print edition. So I focused on the women that are in there more regularly, that have had more than five cartoons or so. I had to, I may have mentioned, in fact, in the back of the book, I mentioned everybody from the whole span of time from 1925 to 2021. And so everybody's mentioned in the book, but they, in terms of talking about their work and showing their work in the magazine, I had to leave some people out. It was hard, but I've been left out and I know how it feels. It's not, it's not nice. Okay. I'm going to dip back a little bit. We touched on this idea of the women disappearing from the New Yorker. And I think you, in a few places, you touch on this idea of, well, women aren't funny. An idea that got into the culture that women aren't funny. And, And I've heard comedians talk about that. Sort of like, what were we thinking? But is that something that was going on? Is that why we didn't see New York uh, women in the New Yorker for for so long? I think, I mean, the New Yorker didn't say, I don't think the New Yorker said we're not letting women in. I don't think it it ever did that. I can be pretty sure that nobody said that. But the culture, there was a new editor, a new cartoon editor at the time. And he came in, uh, oh gosh, 1949, I think, or 39, no, 39. And his taste was such that he didn't publish many women in his time. And he's died before I started, so I, I'd never talked to him. And nobody that I talked to was able to 
give me a sense that he had a thing against women humorists. I just think the culture, you know, we all have looked back on on the culture in the 50s and 60s, and, and we saw a lot of sexist humor towards women. So there was a general feeling that bubbling up and getting stronger that women weren't funny because they, they didn't laugh at the sexist jokes and they didn't create humor much. There was obvious exceptions, famous exceptions, uh, but the, the, that was there. And I, I didn't hear it when I was starting out. And I actually, when I was interviewing all the women, the new women over the pandemic, I would ask them that question because I wanted to know as a 30 year old, do they ever feel that? And, and if you said, no, that's ancient history. I never heard that. What are you talking about? <laughs> I remember not too long ago, was it 2000 or late 1990s, early 2000s, when Christopher Hitchens wrote an article about how women aren't funny. Amazing. It's just amazing. And I think, let me just say one more thing. I'm going on and on about this. No, no, it's fine. Is that what I realized, and this is not a new thought. I don't think it's, I know it's not a new thought, but that once you, with Lee Lorenz, who was the cartoon editor that I came in under in, in the 1970s, I asked him, were you looking for women cartoonists? Because he brought in myself and Roz Chast and a bunch of other people in the 80s, women. And he said, no, I wasn't looking for women cartoonists. I was looking for a new way to express humor. I was looking for new ways to to be funny. And once you do that, once you open the doors or open the um, standards for what is good or what is great, if you make the, a broader, no, no pun intended, definition of what is good, then you get more diversity because women and people of color will have different ways of expressing humor or different ways of looking at our world in a humorous way. And you got to be open to those differences and then publish them. And then more people, I think that's what's happening at the New Yorker now, because people of color see other people of color, women see other women in the magazine. They think, oh, I can do that. Yeah, we, we've been talking about your book in some fairly serious terms so far, but it is called Very Funny Ladies. I mean, were you having a great time? Was it fun for you? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, it's, I, I keep thinking of ways, how can I extend this? I don't want to do another book about just women, but although the other day I was thinking, maybe I'll do a book about women who draw cartoons internationally. And that yeah. would be a huge undertaking. I don't know if I'm up to it. I don't want to separate women out. Like I said, I just love looking into people who have been underappreciated and trying to shine a light on them. You mentioned up front that there are cartoons all throughout. Is the book a little bit like The New Yorker in terms of it's something you can kind of skim through, see the cartoons first, then go back and pick up various chapters along the way as they appeal to you? Sure. It's chronological and you can go through it and look at the cartoons and just have a good time looking at them and then see photographs of the women. I have little sidebars as well about what was going on in the culture at the time in other parts of the creative world. Like in, I don't, I'm not an expert on comics at all, but I do, do know some things and I research some things where there'd be a sidebar about this is what was going on in the comics world or this is what mm. was going on. Um, like I mentioned Bridesmaids in the book, the movie Bridesmaids as a benchmark in the in 2000, I forget when it came out. Did you see that movie? Great movie of a, a strong, big cast of women humorists or women uh, actors. And it was a funny movie that made a lot of money. And I think it opened people's eyes that women being funny, it has a huge audience. And that was true also with SNL and Tina Fey becoming the head writer at SNL. These are things that, that push us into equality in little ways or big ways. 
and they're succeeding in the marketplace and uh, yeah. people are buying tickets and uh, exactly. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Any influences you've uh, picked up as you immerse yourself in all these other styles and all these other drawings, has it, does it influence you at all? Or? What's interesting about the more recent cartoonists, younger cartoonists, talking to them and looking at their work, they're really good at what they do and they do really good miracle cartoons, but sometimes they also do very personal cartoons, but often graphic narratives about their lives and what it's like. And they're much more open about talking about difficulties in sexism. And so I've learned from that. I don't necessarily put it in my cartoons, obviously, but you can't take your personal being out of your cartoons. That's what makes good New Yorker cartoons is they're not just jokes often. The best ones are not just humor, just jokes. They often are from a cartoonist worldview, a cartoonist attitude towards culture or and they do that well, and they do it even more personally than many of us from my generation. And often they're just good to look at, but from a variety of either right. things that are very impressionistic. I remember some of these New Yorker cartoonists that were so incredibly detailed, you yes. know, like a full page cartoon. You could just spend time looking at the art there and wandering mm-hmm. around, you know, and all the details added up to the punchline. In a way, right. So. And that's a certain style the details. And then there's other styles like James Thurber, which is who I I grew up wanting to draw like, and I still sort of draw like him, I think. Minimal, just like his cartoons. If you don't know his work, just Google him. Uh, I'm sure you've seen it. I'm not talking to you, John, the audience. (laughs) And uh, it's, it's like he whipped it off. And the caption is also, you feel like the person just whipped it off, just a comment and, and just a cartoon. But it takes a lot of work to do that. You know, I find it interesting in looking at a, a cartoonist, how their style changes over over the yeah. years. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, Liza, we, we talked to you a year ago. We were coming off a pretty terrible year. I'm not sure the, the, the following year has been all that much better, but, you know, have things opened up for you? Are you feeling in a more productive frame of mind? Uh, are you able to get out and about a bit more? Yes, I'm getting out <laughs> and I'm traveling. I've been on a plane a few times. And people are asking me to, to come and talk or live draw. That's really great. It, I mean, the pandemic, I don't know about you, but I feel lucky that I'm a, a freelance stay at home a lot of the time cartoonist because I or, and writer because I the pandemic was pretty, pretty creative for me. Being stuck in the studio <laughs> was not a bad thing because I tend to like to go places and and you often it's another kind of creativity when you go places it's nice to have a balance of, of both and one other thing i wanted to ask you eliza is you're active in a lot of different channels you know i find you on medium and substack you're really exploring the digital media world where should people definitely find you which types of channels have been most effective for you hmm. i love social media and I love technology. So I do like, you're right. I do try to like, don't you, I try to, something's new. I, it's like a shiny penny for me. It's like, Oh, how do you do that? Right. Um, gosh, well, I have a website. It's my name and I have medium. If you know that blog platform, you can go there and find my work there and my writing. I've written for the New York times, the Washington post and the New Yorker also has, has my work and my writing. And then I, I just started a newsletter um, sorry, Medium is my polit- has often been my political cartoons as well. 
I, I like the idea of a newsletter because it's more informal and it's called seeing things. And it's, I do it maybe two or three times a week, just a little missive about what I find interesting in the world or what we're talking about in, in the cultures and, and some drawing, some video, whatever, just trying it all. So yeah. And I love Twitter, Twitter and Instagram. All mine, all can be found using my, my full name. Right. We're, we're on Twitter all the time. So we, we, we keep I seeing know you're you. Very, and... You're really good at that. You're really, <laughs> I appreciate your attention to my tweets. So thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of attention, we'd like, I, I promise this would be a short take. Let's get into what we call the Seamus plug. You've done it before. You've got a great new book out. Very funny ladies, the New Yorkers, women cartoonists plug away. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at your indie bookstore. Although I, I don't think it's they're quite in the book in the stores yet because of COVID. It was supposed to be come out last fall. Uh, and you can also order a personalized signed copy via my local independent bookstore, Oblong, O-B-L-O-N-G. And they have a page for authors book, personalizing books. So find me there, oblongbooks.com. And uh I signed a whole bunch the other day. I'll keep signing them as long as people keep ordering them. And I'll do a little drawing in the book for you. Okay. I'm going to, I'm definitely going to order mine through Oblong. Uh, great to get it any way you can, but that sounds like the best way to get it. I did see the pictures. Any writer's cramp? You had stacks and stacks of books in front of you. <laughs> uh, you do get a little sloppy after the 40th <laughs> book, but, but I, it's such a joy to do. It's like, I love, because many of the, Books that come in and you, you see that it was from somebody you went to high school with. And that's great. Uh, well, Liz, I want to just mention one other thing as we wrap here with the Seamus Plug. The Seamus Plug has become the imaginary fourth member of our Irish Stew crew. There's me, there's Martin, there's our producer, Bill Schultz. But what does this Seamus Plug actually look like? So we have started a contest with our listeners to tell us what Seamus Plug looks like. And we're offering $500 for a drawing, painting, cartoon, or collage that best describes this shadowy character, Seamus Plug. We're going to have details up at our website, irishstewpodcast.com. So that's our Seamus Plug. Mm -hmm. And uh, Liza, the you know applications are open. Even, oh, even, past, even past guests can join in. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll take a look. I, I feel like it's not fair if I draw something, but... Send it in under an alias. Yeah, can I mention, I forgot to mention Please. that I'm going to be appearing at the 92nd Street Y on March 25th. Perfect. With two other cartoonists, Roz Chast and Amy Wong, and Politics and Prose in Washington. Mm, I can't remember the date of that, but yeah, I'm trying to do as much as I can to tell people about these women. That's great. Liza, thanks so much for joining us a second time. We really appreciate it. Thank you, John. Have a great day. We started out the conversation talking about Liza Donnelly's ongoing forays into Irishness. Well, she checked off one item from her bucket list a few days ago when she strode up Fifth Avenue with the Irish Business Organization of New York, her first time marching in the St. Patrick's Day Parade, and I followed her every step of the way. We highly recommend Liza's new book, Very Funny Ladies, The New Yorker's Greatest Women Cartoonists and Their Cartoons, and in getting your signed copy through Oblong Books. Well, folks, that's going to do it for Irish Stew for a few weeks. We're going to be taking a brief hiatus. 
giving you time to catch up on any of the episodes you missed. In the meantime, we'll be adding some fresh ingredients to Irish stew, bring it back to a boil in May, when we welcome you back for Season 4. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty, with Donald Bowens on drums, Kahalo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com.